0: the book of Romans and start in chapter 1 and verse 1 as you're turning there, Romans 1.1, I just want to say uh, thank you for uh, your grace and encouragement in giving me uh, some time to to focus uh, on some other things. Uh, You wouldn't know it if you looked at my office at this moment because it is chock full of wedding stuff, Uh, but I was able to I believe, finally move into my office, get rid of a bunch of paper files, get rid of all those stacks of papers that are like, there's things hidden in here that you need to do that you've forgotten about, you know, and to just offload all that. Uh, I'm extremely thankful to Scott and to Jerry for their support throughout this. especially thankful to, uh, to John Render for his, his work in the pulpit, he was excellent. Uh, And also thankful for uh, Stephanie's work in in holding things uh, down here at the church. Uh, Just an an excellent opportunity. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to read starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And you might think, wow, this is a long scripture passage. Uh, It is a long scripture passage, but it's probably not going to take much more than uh, 10 minutes to work through, which is actually not that long. And then we're going to pray and we're going to turn to the explanation I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator, the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law for no one is a jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a jew is one who is merely uh, but, but a jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from god then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words. And prevail when you are judged but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of god what shall we say that god is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us i speak in a human way by no means for then how could god judge the world but if through my lie god's truth abounds to his glory why am i still being condemned as a sinner And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now... It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Father, we have read your word and I believe in many places because I I feel it myself. It preaches as it is read. There is... Little need in some places for explanation because your word is clear. And so, Father, I pray that as we open up this text this morning and as we move quickly through it and as we describe the condition of the human being before you, I pray that as we feel the condemnation of some of these passages, I pray that we would feel the broad sweep of the first three chapters of Romans, as we move from the state of man before God because of our own works, we move through that idea and we are brought to the good news about Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would hear it and see it in a way that makes your work, Father, through your Son, Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I pray that it would bring joy and humility to our hearts. I pray that we would delight in the truth of the good news about Jesus this morning and that we would feel afresh because Perhaps we have not felt that joy in a long time. Maybe it's, maybe it's just been a short time. Something has robbed our joy and we, are, we, we feel like we're down in a pit. Maybe we just had a bad day yesterday. and need to be reminded of the gospel. I pray that you would speak to us now, Lord, from this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me for a few moments, uh, imagining... Imagine coming to church and hearing that a letter had arrived, uh, a letter from someone eminent and important in the church, not, not just anyone, but a teacher, a teacher of the church. The letter has come from Paul, and he is one of the apostles, one of those specifically commissioned and sent by God to preach the gospel. Now, the gospel is the good news, that's what that word means. And it's news, Paul says at the beginning of the letter, as, as you're beginning to hear it read, Paul gives this explanation that, that the good news is something that the Old Testament scriptures have been promising. If you know the story about the world being created good and then falling into sin, then in the early chapters of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham that he will bless the whole world through Abraham's generations, through his children, and the story of the Old Testament, and then the the beginning of the the books of the New Testament describe how Jesus was coming in the Old Testament, and how he arrived in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and brought life to the world. The good news, Paul says, is all about Jesus Christ, proven to be the Son of God by his resurrection. You probably would have enjoyed hearing that, that, that Paul was praying for you, that he was thankful for the church in Rome, that he longed to be in their presence. He says in verse 13 that he's wanted to travel to them many times, but he's often been prevented. He wants to come to them, verse 11 says, to encourage and to help them and to see people outside of the church come to know Jesus Christ. But he's also excited to be among them and to preach the gospel to them. I always found that to be an interesting statement that he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you at Rome. Do you just mean people who don't believe it? No, he means to the Christians as well. Why? Because we need to be reminded, don't we? Life goes on throughout the week or through the months and the years and the truth of the gospel comes under attack by many other ideas and our trust in it or our awareness of it or our abiding in it can be slowly but surely chipped away uh, as as one song lyric says the physical world creates a spiritual haze we need to be reminded of the gospel Paul says he's proud of the gospel message, that this message is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, whoever they are. In those days, the big division was between the Jewish people and the Greek people. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and as we'll see, Paul is talking about two kinds of righteousness. But he's very clear to point out in the very beginning that. The just or the righteous are the ones who live, that that the righteous shall live by faith. And that's where he tips his hand and says that the the first, he shows uh, shows what he's going to do, that the first kind of righteousness that we can pursue is is a trap, it's a dead end, it cannot be done, it can only be done by one. The righteous live by faith is a message that's solidly taught in the old testament paul describes the first kind of righteousness and as this this story is told as he's as he's working through what it means to be righteous the gospel doesn't really sound like good news Right? You know, as we were reading those chapters, it was like, oh yeah, it's Romans and we're reading scripture and then it probably got a little dark and it was like, oh, what are we talking about now? And then maybe it got a little darker and you're like, wow, this is kind of actually a little depressing. Right? And then it gets to there's no one good, not even one. And, And a mom is thinking like, not even my baby, you know, or somebody's thinking, I don't know, I try to be good. Really? Is it all that bad? Before we hear the good news, we need to hear the bad news. Paul says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. These are the things which God says, do this. Live this way. And we say, I refuse. Or he says, don't do these things. And we say, those are actually my favorite things. I'm going to do them unrighteousness. And then there is ungodliness. And this is the, we were created to live in fellowship with God, in communion with him, in dependence on him. And ungodliness is the way in which we refuse to depend on him, to conform to his will for our lives. Paul says that we know this in our hearts in verse 18 of chapter 1. But we suppress that truth because we are unrighteous. We can tell ourselves a lie so many times and so often that we begin to believe that it's the truth and we forget that we originally told ourselves that lie that's the suppression of the truth in unrighteousness one of my my friends dr brad mullen said that uh it's it's as if we take a manhole cover and we put it over a pipe that's spewing sewage right we we hold the sewage back and then we turn our back on it and we hold it shut and forget that we're doing that the truth is 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 beating in to our lives, but, but we love our condition, we love what we love because our hearts are wrong and so, we, so we, we wall off the truth. I did say sewage a minute ago. The truth is not sewage. The truth is good. It's pure, clean water. We, we hold that back and then we forget that we're doing it. And Someone may come along and say, you know, the truth about God and the truth about righteousness is evident to you. And we say, no, it's not. You remember what it was like to be at that place. You'll remember how amazing the truth felt when you first heard it. Maybe that's where you are today, suppressing the truth about yourself in unrighteousness. We see in the beginning section that one of our chief problems is our lack of honoring God. We see this in 21 to 23, that we lack... The honor that, that God, we, we, we fail to display the honor to God that we ought. Some might think that other sins are worse, like murder or lying, but failing to honor and recognize God, this is huge. This is a sin against the God who created us to live in a particular way. Paul teaches us that if God is not at the center, then we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We exchange what is most meaningful and significant about our lives for something false and fake. Verse 25 says, then we are completely and utterly given over to falsehood. If we exchange the most important truth about everything, then there is nothing for all other truths to connect to. And then our desires become the center, Paul says. And we think that we are the measure of all things. Next thing that Paul discusses in verses 29 through 31 is he says, If God is not enthroned in his proper place, then we pursue all kinds and all varieties of Sins. This section reads to me like Baskin Robbins in its 31 flavors. You know, like all of a sudden here's all this kind of, of wickedness and unrighteousness. And it's like maybe not everything in that section is true of you, right? We've not done all those things, but maybe there's one where you're like, oh, yeah, that is my favorite. That's my thing right there, you know? Chocolate ice cream with peanut butter in it. Yup. I love it. I love it, right? There's something in there as, as Paul lays out the sins of humanity, we're like not that one, not that one, not that one, not the oh, that one. Yep. We're given over. We desire wrong. We feed ourselves on all of these things which offend God because he is not at the center. Next, we embrace a conspiracy of evil. There is a network that exists within the world. I believe this is what Paul and John and others define as the world, not the earth, but the way that people think when they're separated from God. There's a network where knowing that we deserve God's wrath for our sin, we approve others who practice similar sins. We know the wrongness of sin, but we delight in it, he says in verse 32. The next error is that we fail to comprehend what a stay of judgment means. We think that because judgment does not come immediately for sin, that sin is okay. We think that because because God does not throw down a lightning bolt and stop us, right? Or speak to us from heaven and say, cut that out, that that means that he's not concerned. Or that judgment isn't coming. Or that he doesn't care or that he doesn't keep records, or even as some have said that he does not exist, but we miss the point. Paul says this, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When we embrace a lie and forsake the truth, we miss the idea of grace. We think no judgment, no problem, instead of thinking judgment delayed gives me time to make everything right. We feel we have no need to make it right. Paul then goes on to say that humanity thinks that the good that we do will cancel out the bad. We underestimate the bad, that's what Paul says, and we overestimate the good. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, He'll render to each one according to his works. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And then in verse 11, he says, God shows no partiality. There's an amazing corresponding piece of this what will come later paul here is telling bad news he says god is completely and utterly impartial he's not going to say oh you know i remember you you're a friend you yeah you you get you get exempted from judgment none of that everyone receives an equal application of the standard of judgment Paul then goes on to say, we know the truth whether we learn it from God's word or whether we learn it from our conscience speaking to us. Romans 2.15 speaking about people who've never heard God's law, they've never heard the Ten Commandments, they've never heard God's word say, "You, you must not do this or you should do that, that they show the work of the law written on their hearts and that their conscience bears witness to the truth of God's law because their conscience... Whether we whether we think of it as the little angel on one shoulder and the little devil on the other shoulder, you know, the conscience says, "No, don't do that. That's bad. Don't, no, 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 don't." Conscience bears witness and says, "This is the truth." And so, the thoughts are conflicted. Their thoughts accuse them and excuse them. Because because the heart is broken, it's embraced a lie, but the conscience still speaks and is suppressed then in unrighteousness. Paul is saying here that no one anywhere, in any place, at any time can say that they had no idea what was right and what was wrong. Paul then goes on to say it's not enough to be religious. That righteousness is not an external matter. It's not a matter of doing the right things. I went to synagogue on Saturday. I gave. I went to church on Sunday. I was observant. I was kind to people. It's not enough that that righteousness needs to extend to the interior self. And he says here that no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. That this, this uh, major, that this practice of, of circumcision which marked someone out as a Jew was an outward and a physical thing, but that was not ultimately what God was looking at. He was looking at the inward state of their heart. Declaring, I am one of the people of God is not an external matter, but a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Righteousness in order to withstand the judgment of God, needs to fill all the nooks and crannies, right? I want my English muffin to be really warm, and I want the butter to be... We never kept butter on the counter in my house growing up because you'd get some kind of illness and you would die, but like for years upon years upon years now, you know, we've been leaving it out. It's nice and soft. So you put soft butter on hot English muffin and it, the butter just fills it. Love that. Righteousness needs to fill every space in our lives. It's not just saying I did these things because that's just the exterior. It's like putting a coat of paint on ourselves and hiding inward deadness and inward wrong it needs to go all the way through us and so what Paul says is that the law shows the righteousness of God it answers the question of our guilt before God clearly we we reach this summation of human sin where Paul says we've We've already charged, this is verse 9 of chapter 3. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The word sin, you could take the word sin out and you could substitute a, a different concept, which is which is hard for some to grasp. The idea of legal guilt for sin. The idea that our offenses bring judgment upon ourselves. And that once we have committed unrighteous acts or done ungodly things, we have guilt upon ourselves and we cannot get rid of them. And so Paul says that we are all under sin. And then he does this survey of human sin. He does something interesting here where he says no one is righteous, no one understand, no one seeks For God, and then he surveys the human being from top to bottom. He talks about their throat, their tongue, their lips, their mouth, and then he goes down to their feet and he's demonstrating that the human being is fully fallen. What does the law, what does God's word and all of its commandments teach us? Paul says it stops every single mouth. That anybody who would say to God on judgment day, you didn't do enough to teach me, you didn't you didn't say enough, I didn't know, my parents never taught me, this never happened, you know, like no one ever preached to me, I never read your Bible. Paul says that the, the, the the work of the law, whether we have it living in our conscience or we read it in God's word, that every single human being will place their hand over their mouth and no one will be able to say, I am righteous. And then he says in verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. As Paul talks about the righteous living before God, he's teaching us this, that righteousness of the first kind is this, be perfect, do what God commands and you will live Obey everything perfectly and you will be able to say, I am righteous before God. We have to understand that before the gospel is good news. Because no one lives up to that standard and that is God's standard. Or he cannot truly, ultimately say that he is holy. Because if he lowers his standards, he is no longer holy. Because holy is holy. Absolutely and utterly morally perfect. So now, Paul says this. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There's another kind of righteousness. There's, there's, there's righteousness that you've got to earn by being perfect. Like, don't, don't fall asleep. Don't do anything while you're tired. Don't ever get hangry, you know, where like you're... you're, you're You haven't eaten anything and now you're feeling like I'm going to mess anybody up who gets in my way. You know, don't ever do that. Like live absolutely perfectly or you will be unrighteous. And guess what? Like by the time you learn that this is what you need to do, you've already messed it up. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, and here he means the Old Testament, bears witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what is amazing about what Paul is saying here. Is He is saying that we have to live up to the righteousness of God and be as righteous as God by obeying the law or we cannot be righteous. That's, that's, that's the first kind of righteousness. But then he says, the righteousness of God Is attainable through faith faith in Jesus Christ and then he says there is no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus what he is saying here is that all are in this condition of needing righteousness in order to stand in his presence and satisfy his demands, and they cannot be attained by striving, but because God is gracious, he will grant that righteousness. He will give it to whoever believes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all can be justified by his grace as a gift if they will receive it. How does this righteousness come to pass? How do we we get it? How do we know that it's there? It comes to pass through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. that, That he comes and lives a perfect life. He never sins. He never deviates from the law. Not once. He obeys everything perfectly. Not just the commands that regulate the exterior, but his Thought life is pure and his reactions are perfect and everything that he does is good and he earns by his actions the first kind of righteousness. He is perfectly obedient. And then he goes to the cross. As a human being, he can take the place of another human being. As the son of God, he is of infinite worth and value and can die for every human being. And so it says here in verse 25 that God puts him forward as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation is an offering that turns away wrath, right? If, if you have a super important thing to do at work and you're having one of those days and you're really late and you think everybody's going to be angry at me and you're like, but because I'm, I'm, I'm 30 minutes late and I'm already late, I'll just be 10 more minutes late, but I will stop and I will get donuts, Right? You know, and then you show up and you you have this present. Everybody's like, oh, you were late, but you brought donuts, right? Like, we are satisfied. Okay, fine. God is angry over sin and over the lack of righteousness, but he says, this will suffice. This will satisfy the demands of my wrath that the Son receive the punishment for those who can never pay off their sins. Those who can never satisfy the demands of our wrath. How do we receive the blessing of the the righteousness of Christ? We, We receive the righteousness that he lived in his life by faith and God applies our sins to Jesus when we believe. Paul says here, this is to show God's righteousness. In the past, he saved people in the Old Testament. He saved Abraham and David and others. Why? Because he knew that their sins would one day be punished. And so he he excused their sins. He, He covered them. He passed over former sins. But he also shows his righteousness at the present time because God... Is holy and he is completely and utterly righteous. He demands that we behave in a righteous way, but he is also a gracious God, and so he will solve the problem for humanity who needs a solution because we cannot fix this ourselves. We are made right by God's gracious gift. He cares, and he pursues us, and he draws us to himself. He saves us through the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus was not forced into doing what he did. He agreed with his Father that he would come and live this perfect life and take sin upon himself, receive the penalty for sin in himself. He is a wrath receiver, and that means that we can be grace receivers we simply believe god is just because he punishes and who among us has not felt when someone has wronged us or wronged someone that we love we think this is not right someone needs to be punished when we think that we affirm the work of god on the cross someone has to be punished or the universe is not just There is no meaning in righteousness if somebody ultimately doesn't get punished. But God says, I will take the punishment. Jesus willingly receives it. God puts the sin on him. Jesus is punished, and we are pronounced righteous. Some might say, that's not fair. My answer to my children is always, the universe is not fair. I believe that God is not fair. He is gracious. He does not give us what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. That's grace. This is a a solution to our lack of creator honor. Okay? The first sin, remember that the big sin, is that we don't acknowledge God's place in the universe. We have a gracious creator who's willing to extend kindness to us even though we ignore him. This is a solution to being given over to falsehood. God restores our access to himself. We walked away, but he pursues us in grace. Romans 5 verse 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And verse 2 says, we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. This is a solution to the mind that and heart that hungers for sin our union with Christ breaks the power of sin in our lives we see this in Romans 6 the one who has died has been set free from sin and we'll see as we work through Romans that we are united with him we die the death that he died spiritually and therefore we are free from the power of the law we are freed from the conspiracy of evil having access to the truth by the power of the spirit we are able to press forward in the renewal of our minds paul says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice and to be transformed by the renewal of our mind there is a solution here to our ignorance about judgment when we hear the gospel when we hear the bad news we hopefully And I pray this is the case with you this morning. If you've not put your faith and trust in Christ, we say, I deserve that judgment. And then we hear that before we put our faith and trust in Christ, that Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we are hit with the depth of our sin and the extent of our offense against God, and then we see the grace of God in Christ, we are humbled and we realize how gracious and kind he is. We have a solution to our works being weighed. Romans 5.18 says, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all Men, the work of Jesus applied to you cancels out every unrighteous thing you have ever done. That is the bold claim of what God promises us in the gospel in Romans 5, 18 and 19. Think about it, what Paul has said, that God's wrath is revealed against our unrighteousness. Because God's righteousness is revealed in the law, right? And we know that that we're condemned. But think about it. He says in, in Romans 3 that now the righteousness of God can be attained in another way. By faith in the work of Jesus. Attained by faith through grace. Think about what Paul is saying. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, God views you as righteous as himself when judgment comes. That is amazingly good news. That is incredibly good news. And so we have a solution here to our works being weighed, a solution to the condemnation of the law. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and condemned sin in Jesus flesh in order that we may be able to say the requirement of the law is satisfied in me because of what Jesus has done for me and this is a solution to the lack of deep down righteousness the nooks and crannies are filled with the righteousness of Christ and that means that our absolute condemnation that Paul pronounced When we put our faith and trust in Christ, it is completely and utterly taken away. When wrath comes for us, when judgment comes, we are able to say, I am righteous because of the work of Christ. Truly, this is good news. What should the first hearers have thought on hearing this scripture read in their presence when they hear of their absolute condemnation and then of the gospel, I believe they should have thought three things. Paul says in Romans 3.27 that all kinds of boasting is excluded. And therefore, those who understand the gospel, who truly believe it, ought to be the most humble of people. We ought not to look at other people and say, you are a horrible human being and I'm going to throw a rock at you. We ought to say, I can show you where to find grace because I found it too. Second, we are able to uphold the law. Paul will say in Romans 7, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Romans 3, do we overthrow the law by our faith? By no means. We uphold the law. We are able to say God is good and his standards are good. And then third, we ought to turn and worship God Experiencing a feeling of blessedness that that we have been introduced to something amazing that we could never purchase, that we do not deserve, that we have been gifted something wonderful and a deep gratitude ought to fill our souls and fill us with joy. We'll conclude with the words of Paul quoting David who said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for willingly taking our sin upon yourself, for receiving in your body the due penalty for our error, Paul said that that when when we exchanged the truth for a lie and engaged in all kinds of sinful behavior, we received in our body the penalty for our error. But you take that from us so that we might escape judgment. We don't deserve it. But you do this for us. I pray. The two groups of people in this room this morning, Lord, there are some who have never put their faith and trust in you for some reason. I pray that they would understand your graciousness and kindness toward them and they would say yes to you and that they would pray a simple prayer of faith this morning. Thank you for taking my sin. I need your righteousness. And then believing that you will give what you have promised. And Lord, for those who are in the room who have believed this truth and have believed it for a long time, maybe, maybe the hope has, has faded over time, maybe the understanding has been diminished. I pray that of all people, we would be the most humble, that the news of our sin would humble us, that the news of our deliverance would fill us with joy and gratitude, and that we would praise your name and worship you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. We thank you for him. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.